Support for Green Dreamer comes from our Green Dreamer planners that you can check out at greendreamer.com slash shop, as well as our listener patrons. Thank you so much for supporting this independent show starting at $2 per month by going to greendreamer.com slash support, sharing your favorite episodes with friends, or leaving me a rating and review in the podcast app. I read them all, they warm my heart, they keep me going, and I really, really appreciate your support. So thank you so much. Something that really struck me when I was able to visit some of the projects we helped fund was that you'll be standing in somebody's front yard and that home won't have power and you'll be looking at a natural gas extraction site. It's like right across the road. A lot of tribal nations, the Navajo Nation included, have for decades been sites of resource extraction specifically for fossil fuels. And at the same time, they're getting radically underserved. That was Dory Trimble, the executive director of Honold Foundation, started by Alex Honold, the professional rock climber and star of the Oscar and Emmy award-winning documentary, Free Solo. His foundation works to reduce the world's environmental impact while addressing social inequalities by providing solar power access to those who need it most, both in the United States and abroad. So stay tuned as Dory is about to share her expertise on how a lack of access to energy today is tied to and perpetuates social inequity. Why achieving energy sovereignty for vulnerable communities is vital for them to be able to reclaim their local decision-making power and more. Green Dreamer, if you're ready, take a deep breath and let's dive in. Hey, it's Kamea Shane, and this is Green Dreamer, a podcast exploring our paths to ecological balance, intersectional sustainability, and true abundance and wellness for all. If you haven't already, make sure to hit subscribe and together, let's learn what it takes to thrive in every sense of the word. Yeah, so I grew up in Salt Lake City, Utah, and the reason why I'm from here is because essentially my parents moved here to ski. They were from other places, and and they really came here for the mountains. And so as a kid, I spent a ton of time camping in the deserts of southern Utah. I have a lot of recollections of um, we would hike in, in canyons a lot, and me and my little brother would get tired of hiking. And so my parents would leave us a water bottle and some M&Ms and say, we'll be back, and they would just keep going. And there was nowhere for us to go because it's a canyon. It's like, it's a very secure, walled in, clear place. You can't get lost. And so me and my brother would play alone in the desert for what felt like a very long time, but which was probably not very long at all. And eventually my parents would wander back and, and we'd head out. So I've been spending a lot of time outside from a really young age. Through high school and college, I spent a lot of time hiking and backpacking and then about four years ago, I started rock climbing. I've lived in a bunch of different places, was in North Carolina, West Virginia, served with Peace Corps in the Dominican Republic, but moved back to Salt Lake City about five years ago. And, and that's when I discovered rock climbing. And climbing has really been sort of a new way for me to connect with the landscape. I've gotten to explore peaks that I've looked at my whole life in a really different way. And I think that that's really reinforced my sort of like passion for spending time outside and my interest in in doing things to protect it. So prior to working at uh, Honold Foundation, you had some interesting experiences helping to solve complex problems and build systems from the ground up for orthopedic surgeons in Utah, undocumented youth in the Dominican Republic, and migrant farm workers in rural Appalachia. What was the common thread there in terms of the challenges that these different groups of people faced? And what was your biggest learning lesson that you then took with you to support your work today? 
I mean, that's hard to say. I think that the communities that I've worked with over the years, they don't necessarily have shared challenges as individuals or families or on a community level. I think that struggles with social justice and equity are are a commonality, but the variance on it can be really different depending on where you are. That said, something that I did find was that in all of these different spaces where I've worked, especially in my work with migrant farm workers in North Carolina and with the um, community of undocumented youth in the Dominican Republic, something that that's really consistent is that people are just doing their best. And there are a lot of systemic barriers in place that make it really hard for folks to achieve their goals, even when those goals are really modest. And so the work that I've done in those two roles specifically I think that at its best, that work was helping people overcome these barriers to just do what, frankly, should be the bare minimum for all of us. When I lived in the Dominican Republic, I was a Peace Corps volunteer, and and I worked primarily with undocumented and stateless youth, mostly Dominicans of Haitian descent. And because of the way the laws worked then and continue to work, I've been out of the DR for years, and the situation, if anything, has only gotten worse for a lot of these youth who are now you know, in their 20s and 30s they don't have birth certificates. They don't have documentation. And so in, or they do have it and they're not allowed to access it because of um, these really racist laws. And so as a result, they can't go to school past the eighth grade. They can't open bank accounts. They can't work in the formal sector. They can't get married. They can't get passports. And like these kinds of things are not, these shouldn't be luxuries, right? Like these are really basic human activities. So when I was there, the work I was doing is really helping build capacity with the existing leadership in, in this movement called Reconocido, which means recognized, not to do the work for anybody, but to take the skills I had, which are more organizational and um, I'm pretty good at thinking about systems and building new structures that work more efficiently and help share those skills with the community that was already doing really powerful work to make them more effective. And so when I look at the work I've done, that that pattern of like looking at a system and figuring out how to make it work better is something that I'm really good at, even though the folks I'm working with and the goals we're trying to reach vary a lot. So with these realizations, I mean, what do you think this can tell us in terms of our need to focus on the systems themselves versus our need to tell individuals and educate individuals on what they need to do? I think a lot about personal choice and I have this running joke about how like, I think it's great that people have stopped using single use straws in a lot of communities. And if you think about places like the Dominican Republic, where the solid waste management can be really poor, where you're really close to the ocean, like having a bunch of disposable straws on the street is bad. It's bad for wildlife. It's bad for the oceans. It's bad for communities. I agree with that. However, I think that sometimes, especially in more developed places like the States, we get in this habit of only thinking about personal choice. It's like, well, I use reusable straws and like I never get a throwaway coffee cup and I try to ride my bike to work. And I think all that stuff is great. And I'm not saying that people shouldn't do it. But when I think about what's going to save the world, it's not personal choice. I think personal choice is important. And I'm not saying that we should all give up on avoiding single use plastics. but I think systems level change is really, really important. And in some ways, it's a cop out to only think about personal choice because it's like, well, this is all I can control. It's just me. I'm a lot more passionate about thinking about things on a bigger scale and saying like, okay, how can we shift this system so that it serves more people, so that it's less damaging to the environment, so that it's more equitable, so that people don't get left behind. I think that systems level change fundamentally has the ability to have a bigger impact on 
on quality of life for more people at the same time. Honold Foundation, for our listener who may not be familiar, was started by the world-famous professional rock climber Alex Honold, who was the protagonist of the documentary Free Solo that was published by National Geographic. The foundation's mission is to help to reduce environmental impact and address inequality by supporting solar energy initiatives worldwide. What was it that led Alex and you as a rock climber as well to connect the dots between this sport to humanity's environmental impact and also our social inequality? It's a really good question. And one of the things that is sort of a recurring challenge at the Hollow Foundation is like, how do we explain to people why Alex cares about solar energy? Because it's kind of a leap, right? It's like rock climbing, solar energy access. Like You don't normally put those two things side by side. The story that, that Alex tells a lot is about a climbing expedition he went on to Chad years ago, and it was his first exposure to folks really living in extreme poverty and in a place where he talked a lot about how he was, he was hanging out with kids who probably were never going to walk on anything other than dirt floors. And he frames it in terms of a fundamental sense of unfairness. I talk about it as social justice, social equity. Alex calls it unfairness. It's all the same thing, right? It's this idea that Things aren't equal across the board. Things aren't equitable. And you want them to be. That offends some sort of like baseline sense of right and wrong. So I think that Alex's passion for this work came from that fundamental sense of unfairness. Our focus on energy has a lot to do with his own experience. I mean, Alex used to live in a van and that van had a tiny off-grid solar system that's really similar to what you would have if you were living in a developing country and had your own small panel light bulb plug set up. And so he knew firsthand what it was like to not have access to power and how nice it was to have a small solar setup in your home. And so that's where we started. In 2012, Alex was mostly just giving his own money. He was giving away a third of his annual income, which Whenever I say that, I like to stop and like encourage you to really think about it. Like think about how much money you make in a year and then think about taking a third of it and just giving it to things you care about. I think that level of philanthropy is something that we could all aspire to. I'm, I'm really passionate about encouraging people to give their money away on whatever scale they're comfortable with. I think there's something really radical about it. And it's a cool way to, to help advance causes that you're passionate about. So the foundation's overall goals are broad, but is aiming to achieve them in very specific and strategic ways. Namely, the path you're taking to address global inequality is by providing people to better access to power through solar. What is the relationship we have right now between our global inequality and access or lack of access to power? I think power gets overlooked a lot because it's not as sexy as or or as fundamental as something like water. It's not as easy to engage people emotionally about as something like education. At the same time, it's totally fundamental. When I was a Peace Corps volunteer, I was lucky enough to live in a part of the Dominican Republic that has fairly consistent power, but occasionally it would go out. And firsthand, I learned what it's like to not have power for a week and a half when you're not expecting it. And what happens is that all the food in your refrigerator goes bad. It's a billion degrees. Um, because you can't run fans. If you have a water pump that uses electricity, that won't work anymore. And so you end up in this situation where really quickly lack of access to power, it makes everything else that much harder. And for families that are already living on the edge, things like losing the food in their refrigerator can be really problematic. People in the community who are diabetic, who have insulin that needs to be refrigerated are suddenly in a really serious situation. 
energy connects us to the world. It's what makes other things possible. It's a baseline need. We work on energy access because of that, because it has the ability to impact people's lives in such a fundamental way. In a lot of the places where we work, energy is also a massive expense. Right now, we're working with a community in Puerto Rico called Adjuntas, where um, we're supporting business owners to build a solar microgrid with a cooperative management structure in the center of town. Some of those business owners are spending over a quarter of their income each month on power. That has a waterfall effect. It means that they can't hire as many employees. It means they can't pay their employees as well. In turn, that affects the number of people who can find work in this community. It encourages people to leave to seek work elsewhere. And of course, when that grid is also unreliable, you're spending a lot of money on a service that you can't count on. And least of all, in disaster scenarios like around Hurricane Maria, the power was out for months. And so I think it's one of those things where like, it's easy to forget about energy because especially those of us who live in more developed places, like my power's always on. It's like a really big deal if the power goes out. It's almost a novelty, right? Like you light candles and it feels special. And one of the reasons why I'm passionate about energy access is because it is one of those things that we take for granted, but it's something that that's really fundamental. And so we support that work because we think it has the ability to really improve people's lives and, and reduce environmental impact at the same time. As a matter of principle and practicality, I know Alex lives as simply as possible, and the Honnold Foundation is also an extension of that same ethic. How do we work with the fact that the people today with the greatest environmental impact are the same people who've obtained that same power and wealth through the use of energy, a lot of energy and extraction of natural resources? So how do we at the same time provide more access to energy for people who are currently marginalized while balancing that with this pursuit of trying to live more simply so that collectively we can live more sustainably? Most of the people I know who are working in community development, especially people who are working in philanthropy, we tend to come from positions of privilege. I was on a panel the other week for um, a panel on climate change for the Access Fund, which is a climbing access organization. And someone asked, how do we tell stories in a better way when so often the people who are on the front lines of climate change are people who aren't like us? And my answer to that was the fact that I'm the person who's answering this question. Like I'm a, a straight white cisgendered woman with a significant amount of class privilege. And the fact that I'm the person who's answering that question means that we still have a really long way to go. Um, and I don't think that there isn't a seat at the table for people like me. Obviously, I'm sitting in one right now. But I think that broadening the, the people who make decisions about this stuff is really important. And involving people directly affected by the things that we're trying to change in the planning and the strategy and deciding who gets money, really sort of flattening out that hierarchy is really powerful. And it's something that the Honnold Foundation is working on. We're not there yet. We're still a really young organization. We've only been an independent 501c3 for a little bit over a year, even though we've been around since 2012. And we're still learning the best way to really serve our grantees. We're trying to build systems that are grantee-driven, not just grantee-centered. We want their needs and their priorities to determine things like our organizational structure and our grant-making program and the way we tell stories. Like We want them to be in charge, but that's a structure that I haven't yet found a really perfect model for. And so we have to make up some of it as we go along, and we don't always get it right. Broadly, though, making sure that that the frontline communities, the people who are the most affected as climate change starts to shift 
the way our world looks and behaves. At the end of the day, like, I don't know what it's like to live in the Caribbean when a catastrophic hurricane strikes. It's not a question of if the next Hurricane Maria will hit Puerto Rico, but when. Like, it's going to happen again. It's going to get worse. And so I think that there's a lot of urgency around encouraging the people who are directly affected by these climate impacts to join the conversation and foregrounding their voices in a really meaningful way. That this isn't just about inviting one or two people to a meeting and having them give a PowerPoint presentation and everyone clapping and then going about their usual behavior. Like, I think it's time to to really start thinking critically about what we need to change in order to make these spaces more inclusive and more justice-oriented. Well, several articles have highlighted that you were integral to the Honnold Foundation's growth and its ability to have been able to scale its work. What did it take for you to realize this vision you guys had so you could maximize and continually grow your positive impact? What sorts of changes did you bring to the foundation? So when I joined the team, we were really still an extension of Alex's personal giving. So we didn't really have a grant-making framework. We gave money to organizations who we heard about through the grapevine or through Google or through uh, community connections. And we were a donor-advised fund of Tides, which is kind of like a nonprofit incubator. And so we didn't have to worry about our own administration or tax reporting or any of that. And it was all really quiet. Alex didn't like to talk about it because he felt like talking about the Honnold Foundation was like an ego thing. Over the course of my time with the team, we've transitioned into becoming a full-fledged organization. We're an independent 501c3 now. We have a board of directors. We have staff. We have a grant-making structure. We have a reporting structure. We have a broader donor base. Our budget has increased by like probably close to 200% over the course of the past two years. It's really been sort of a period of exponential growth. If I'm totally honest, I don't really know how I've done it. (laughs) I think that it's one of those things where like, I never let perfect be the enemy of good. I am a perfectionist, but sometimes you've just got to get stuff done. We definitely approach things with an experimentation mindset. We move really quickly. We change really quickly. I try to do things in the way that makes sense, not necessarily the way that they're like, quote unquote, supposed to be done. We've talked a lot about how, I mean, we're never going to be the Bill and Melinda Gates Foundation, right? And like the Bill and Melinda Gates Foundation does really, really cool work. And I have a great deal of respect for them. But it's a different scale. It's different goals. It's a different structure. Ten years from now, I still don't think our team will be more than five people. And what that means is that of the funds that come in, this year we'll be spending over 90% of our budget on programs, which is pretty unique. It's something I'm proud of. I think that it's really important to be good stewards of the money that people donate to our work. And And similarly, like my goal is to get as much money in and as much money out as fast as I can. We don't have an endowment because we're trying to solve an urgent problem. It doesn't matter if we have $2 million in an endowment 30 years from now if the world is on fire. It behooves us much more to move that money quicker to the organizations on the front lines that are doing this solar energy access work that's reducing environmental impact, that's making people's lives better. It doesn't really matter if we continue to exist. That sort of like lack of ego around our organizational longevity, I think, makes it really easy and in some ways really fun because we can just keep cranking money through. (laughs) And it makes it really easy to talk to donors, too. Like there's no we're totally transparent about everything, including the things that we struggle with, including the systems we still haven't finished building. Um, We're kind of building the rocket ship as we fly it. But I think we're going someplace interesting. 
Well, at this point, you've established partnerships with other local nonprofits around the world. Where, as you mentioned, you redirect donations given to the Honold Foundation to these other community-based projects that need this funding the most to be able to support their on-the-grounds work today. I'm curious how you go about evaluating which projects most urgently need support or can most meaningfully address inequity at the same time, and how do you navigate the differences that exist among different regions, communities, and their needs? When it comes to solar energy, one of the reasons why I think it's a really cool way to focus our funding is that it scales really well, both up and down. So in the past, we funded a lot of solar lantern projects, which are really like the smallest scale of solar that we talk about. Like it's a lantern. It has like a little tiny panel on it. It charges. It creates light. It's incredibly simple. But solar is also effective all the way up to the utility scale. And we don't fund utility scale solar. It's a little bit out of our financial purview, but... For us, funding a project like the microgrid in Puerto Rico, which will be connecting all these businesses around a central square, that's also a really effective deployment of solar. That said, when you look at those two projects side by side, if you try to compare them based on like, well, how many kilowatts of solar did we buy with each dollar? That breakdown is never going to make sense. Mm -hmm. We also support residential solar in Sacramento. And if you compare the cost of a residential solar install in Sacramento to the cost of 10 solar lanterns in Malawi to the cost of a residential solar install in Detroit to the cost of a solar microgrid in Puerto Rico, you end up with all this weird data that doesn't really tell you anything about the efficacy of the work or the impact it's having. And so we don't count kilowatts when we count the impact of our work. That's not what we're tracking. We're a very qualitative organization when it comes to evaluation of projects. One of the big things that we provide our partners in addition to grant funding is a storytelling spotlight. The thing that makes the Honold Foundation special is Alex. People care about what he does. When he shows up places, people listen. And so we like to fund work that's precedent setting. We have a slightly higher tolerance for risk than a lot of other foundations, much like Alex's approach to climbing, Mm. but we do it in a calculated way. So in Detroit, we recently funded 10 residential solar installs for homes belonging to a community land trust. And Detroit is not a particularly receptive place for solar energy. Their policies around solar are not particularly progressive. Michigan is known for having a series of extremely regressive utilities, as well as a number of coal plants that are still in operation, although Sierra Club's Beyond Coal campaign is doing a great job of addressing that. But we funded those projects because we love the organization that's doing that work. The North End Woodward Community Coalition is like, they're deeply, deeply tied to their community. They're led by the people they serve. They meet all these really variable local needs. They're really good at closing gaps. They have a food bank. They have an equitable internet initiative. They do the solar program. And so we funded their work because we wanted to draw attention to it. And I think that that's something that it's a big part of our strategy, making making revolutionary work visible and standing Alex next to nonprofit leaders so that people will listen to the nonprofit leaders is kind of our superpower. And it's something that Alex is psyched about. I think he, he has a whole bit about how like fame is pointless, but the work with the foundation gives it some meaning. It's a little, it's kind of tongue in cheek, but like it works. People pay attention when Alex goes places. And so we have the opportunity to help our nonprofit partners tell their stories in the ways they want to tell them. And all we have to do is just stick Alex in there and all (laughs) their audience gets amplified. 
I'm aware that you have a more recent project where you're working with indigenous communities in the Americas to help facilitate energy sovereignty. What do you think have been the impacts of the indigenous communities that have had to rely on our centralized and monopolized energy grids? And what can achieving energy sovereignty make possible for them? So most of our work with indigenous communities in the Americas is through uh, the Grid Alternatives Tribal Program. Grid Alternatives is a really amazing organization doing solar energy access work throughout the Americas. We've been supporting Grid's tribal office for a year now. We'll be launching into our second year of support this year. They're working with a bunch of different tribal nations, so they work in a variety of places. The work that we've funded so far has mostly been on the Navajo Nation. Something that really struck me when I was able to visit some of the projects we helped fund was that you'll be standing in somebody's front yard, and that home won't have power. And you'll be looking at a natural gas extraction site. It's like right across the road. And a lot of tribal nations, the Navajo Nation included, have for decades been sites of resource extraction specifically for fossil fuels. And at the same time, they're getting radically underserved. The grids that are there often don't work well. It's hard to get service to different locations. A lot of the homes are remote. There are challenges related to addresses. A lot of homes don't have addresses, which makes it really hard to service them from a utility perspective. And in general, you're looking at these places with these long, long, long histories of deep ties to the land. And the only way to generate income in those spaces is resource extraction. And so working with Grid Alternatives Tribal Program, the reason why I'm so passionate about that work is that Tribal nations in the Americas have been given the short end of the stick for an extremely long time. And energy sovereignty is one way to help those communities kind of get their decision-making power back. Developing higher levels of energy sovereignty can do things like keeping money on the reservation as well. A lot of the money coming from that resource extraction is going away. And so doing job training on the Navajo Nation through Grid Alternatives, helping to give young people the skills they need to get jobs in their communities instead of leaving. I think it's a really cool sort of ecosystem of programs that help increase self-determination and self-sufficiency within those tribal nations, provide people with technical skills that help them get jobs, um, good jobs in the places where they already live, And also giving people the opportunity to serve their own community. The project that we visited with the Ojo and Sino chapter of the Navajo Nation, there was a group of um, mostly women there, students from Fort Lewis College in Durango, mostly Navajo, who were senior engineering students. And this was a part of their spring break. They got to go to this chapter house, in some cases a chapter house like next door to where they grew up, and do a solar install that served people who could have been their neighbors. And I love supporting work that gives meaningful skills to the people from these marginalized communities and lets them do the work themselves, work that they want to do, work that they're perfectly capable of doing, work that they're psyched about and that benefits the community. Me and our board chair were there and like we helped dig some ditches and that was nice. But the truth is like I'm medium good at digging ditches. It's like not my highest use. Well, no, that's not what I mean. I'm medium good at ditches, but like The truth is, is that like, we didn't need to be there. We wrote a check and they got it done. And that is really, that's one of the best things about the Honol Foundation's work is like, we're providing unrestricted funding to organizations who already know exactly what they're doing. And we can show up and take pictures and help them tell the story. And we're always there to support them in whatever way they need. But fundamentally, they're their decisions to make. It's their work to do. And we're just here to support it. 
That's so powerful. I feel like around the world, uh, there's so many amazing initiatives on the grounds. And oftentimes their only limiting factor is the financial resources to be able to support the work that they, they already know that they need to do and are able to do. So it's really incredible that the Honold Foundation has set up this model where you put your trust into these communities to know what they need most and to know their best paths forward. Yeah. We work in a lot of different places and we're never going to be in a position to know what people want and need in rural Puerto Rico, in Sacramento, in Detroit. It's just too many places. We can't know. And so the way our funding model works, we identify other organizations, grassroots organizations who do understand local needs, who have a very clear sense of what the community wants and who have local trust and accountability. And we give them the tools to be successful at the work that they're already doing. Well, certainly at a global level, we have ways to go to be able to liberate ourselves entirely from our current reliance on fossil fuels. And as the Honold Foundation continues to scale its work while addressing environmental justice, I'm really hopeful that we're just bringing ourselves closer and closer to that every single day. For you, having seen the various roadblocks that you faced or witnessed as you further your mission, what do you think we need most to be able to get to net zero emissions from energy while at the same time realizing a more equitable world? Fundamentally, I don't know. I'm not the kind of person who looks at the climate crisis and is like, this is the way. Like, I know exactly how to solve this problem. We just need to do X, Y, and Z and it'll all be dialed. That's not really how I think about it. I tend to view things sort of in the immediate term. I like to focus on what I can touch and change now. And the Honnold Foundation's work has always been really action-oriented. I think it's easy when you look at the climate crisis to get overwhelmed by how big it is and get paralyzed and do nothing, especially when you're looking at issues of equity and justice, because it's like, oh, God, there's so much of it. I don't want to do it wrong. And then you just get stuck. I like to approach this work with a really high degree of transparency, being totally explicit about what we don't know, what we're still figuring out, what we might do wrong, and really trying to build partnerships with the organizations that we fund so we can help them figure out how to move things forward. Or if they just look at us and they're like, look, we already know what we're doing, write us a check and leave us alone. I will, with great pleasure, write them a check and leave them alone. I think that that degree of honesty and willingness to fail and and mutual respect, a belief that the people do know what they need, that they are prepared to do this work, that we just need to pass along some of the tools of privilege so they can get it done. That's something that I would love to see more of in the climate space. I think that there are a lot of different ways to do this work and all of them are important. I think about friends of mine who are really radical, who are involved in direct action, who never compromise. And I think that works important. I also think it's really important for there to be people out there who only focus on things like voting and voter registration and trying to get candidates in office who have a better reflection of our values when it comes to thinking about the environment and social equity. I think all those things matter. There's no one right way. What I like to think about is, okay, what am I good at? Like, what am I uniquely good at doing? And how can I use those skills to try and make the world a better place? At the end of the day, I could have decided, like, I'm going to go be a, I don't know, I could have been a scientist, right? But, like, I'm pretty bad at math, and I didn't love school. I probably would have been okay at it if I tried really, really, really hard. But finding the thing that you're naturally really good at means that you can be better at it faster. 
And I mean, it's like what I said, like we're trying to solve an urgent problem. And so finding a place where your skill set is uniquely well suited to help address these broader needs, there is something selfless about that, even though it's rooted in like sort of a sense of self and ego and, and figuring out what it is that you're good at. It's about figuring out what you're good at so that you can leverage it for other things and other people. So I guess the short answer is like, I don't know. I don't think that there's one right way, but I think that the wrong way is to do nothing. You're listening to Green Dreamer with Kamea Shane, and we're now going into a mindful musical intermission before closing off with our final five. Don't wait any longer Cause the night is drawing in And the sun's getting stronger While the ice is wearing thin Come out of the shadows So your voice can be received Don't stand on the sidelines Come fight for the air that you breathe Cause we all have the power to change Yeah, we all What's an uplifting social media account or a publication you follow or a book that's been really profound for you? I read this book called Essentialism this summer that totally changed my life to the point that like my friends are grumpy about it because I won't stop talking about it. (laughs) And the basic premise is like identifying the critical path, like figuring out what's essential and then building your life around that. And uh, I think everybody alive should read it. I was reading it on a climbing trip to Mexico and we were taking a rest day and like hanging out on the lawn. And my friend was trying to take a nap and I kept like being like, wake up. I have to read you this section out loud. (laughs) So it's amazing. And uh, everyone should read it. Essentialism. What do you tell yourself to stay positive and inspired? Done is the engine of more. There's this great productivity, creativity manifesto. It's called the Cult of Done Manifesto. And it's really short. It's like this rapid fire list of ideas that help you think creatively and move through things and keep moving. And um, done is the engine of more is like one of the key pieces of that. This idea that like you just have to keep getting stuff done. Like if you get things done, things will move, things will change. The other thing that I think about a fair amount these days, especially when work feels really difficult, is everything is temporary. And there's this really famous alpinist, Conrad Anker. His version of that is hold fast, all storms pass. But this idea that like, even the bad things, like you will move through it. You're not going to be stuck in this place forever. And I think that that's a powerful reminder when the work can feel a little bit overwhelming sometimes. What's one thing you're working on right now for your health? Oh God, (laughs) Uh, exercising more. I've been doing this thing where I'm like, I don't have an hour to go to the gym. Like I need to keep working. And the fact of the matter is that no amount of work that I could have completed in that hour is worth what it does to my mental health to not exercise. So I'm being more assertive about holding boundaries around taking care of my body and especially um, spending time outside. I'm lucky enough to live in a place where I can climb outside 30 minutes from my office. And so making time for that, even when it feels impossible, has been a good, good addition to my quality of life. What are you working on right now to elevate your positive impact for our planet? Honestly, I feel like the my previous answer is is the answer to this question too. I think it it can be really hard when you're doing work that feels important 
to remember that like it is you who are doing it. And if you don't take care of yourself, you can't do the work. And so figuring out where that balance point is between pouring everything into the work and taking time to refill your cup elsewhere has been, it's a balance I'm still figuring out. That book Essentialism talks about taking like retreats where you don't bring your phone and you don't bring your computer and you read a bunch of books and you sit around and do nothing and you look at the mountains and you walk around and that sort of like emptiness space, like that nothing space is something that you really have to willfully create in today's world. But taking the time to do that, I've been blocking off like an afternoon on my calendar every couple of weeks has been really powerful. I feel like it's giving me clarity around things that I don't get when I'm like deep in the weeds. And what makes you most hopeful for our planet and world at the moment? Oh, boy. (laughs) (laughs) I think the thing that makes you the most hopeful, honestly, is how much fun it's possible to have spending time outside. As someone who rock climbs, I climbing has really shifted my threshold for what I think fun is. And that sounds totally ridiculous. And like anyone who writes is like, oh, fun is so vague. Like, what does that word even mean? But like, it is fun. It's like purely delightful. It like makes you giggle. (laughs) And I think that having experiences like that in the outdoors teach people that it's worth giving this your all. And having experiences like that in the outdoors with people who might not have historically been welcome there, bringing other people into the outdoors with you who haven't had those experiences or who might not feel safe there otherwise, I think that there's a lot of like power and magic in that. And when I'm feeling like it's all sort of hopeless and I don't know how to move forward, spending time outside and reminding myself of like the feeling that this is really all about on some level can be really powerful. Well, Green Dreamer, to learn more and stay updated on Dory's work at the Honold Foundation, you can head to www.honoldfoundation.org. That's H-O-N-N-O-L-D foundation.org. You can also find her work at dorytrimble.com and you can follow her on Instagram at dorytrimble or at Honold Foundation. I have all of this linked in the show notes as well that you can find at greendreamer.com. Dory, if our listener would like to get involved with or support your work at the Honold Foundation, what calls to action do you have for us? Follow us on social media. Learn more about our work. Tell people about our work. You can donate to our work if you want to, but you can also donate to other people's work. I want to see everybody giving more of their money away. So even if you feel like $20 is a stretch right now, $5 can mean a lot to an organization close to home. So as executive director of the Honol Foundation, it's my job to tell you to donate. But as a human being who cares about the world and other people and you, you should give money to what you're the most passionate about, especially locally. Small donations can have a huge impact for small local nonprofits. Beautiful. Well, thank you so much for joining us today and for sharing your story, your inspirations and your expertise with us. What final words of wisdom do you have for us as Green Dreamers? It doesn't have to be perfect. You just have to do something. And impact matters more than intent, but having good intentions is a really great place to start. Yeah, we are.